restaurants will all be doing a, a booming business. But in case, men, in case you didn't have any time to do any shopping or don't have any idea what to get for your wife, I've got a few ideas for you. I got some in this bag. First of all, always make sure it's a nice red bag. And uh, the way to a woman's heart is chocolate. Three forty nine at Walmart. <laughs> Jewelry. It doesn't matter if it's regifted as long as it's shiny. That, that's that's. that's. <laughs> what else is in here? Oh yeah, flowers. Okay, <laughs> flowers, and and they got to be red. And uh, I found this one at Walmart. <laughs> and the thing is, you see, it's it's uh, it's not fresh, and it's not even a real flower. It's. But the thing is, you could use it next year, right? It's <laughs> We've always got to eat. And uh, to take your sweetheart out for a nice meal on, on uh, Valentine's is always a good thing to do. Two-for-one special at Wendy's. <laughs> and this last one, I think, was really good. Because when I went to the, to the store to look at the price of cards, it's expensive. You know, a little piece of cardboard that is really expensive. So I went to Walmart, the place where everyone goes to shop, and I found this. It says, 32 Valentine cards. <laughs> Only 349. <laughs> and just think, it'll last you 32 years. Well, enough of that. To my mind, Valentine's Day is a good day on the calendar because it not only stimulates the economy, it celebrates wholesome things like love and marriage. And today I want to talk about marriage. You may not know this, but I'm kind of a a romantic. I, I still remember with great clarity the fondness and unfondness when I first met my wife, Kathy. When I was 17 years old, some of the guys from my church in Windsor, Ontario, went across the border to the States to attend a Christian youth event in Detroit. The truth be told, we were on the hunt. And that's when I first met Kathy Christensen. What attracted me first was her beautiful strawberry blonde hair. As I caught a glimpse of the back of her, way across a crowded room. And at the pizza restaurant later, when I got a view of her face, I was entranced. And I sought to sit as close to her as possible. It didn't really matter that she was on a date with another guy. (laughs) I was smitten. It was love at first sight. I began to pursue her. Five years later, we got married and the rest is history, 52 years of history, to be exact. (laughs) 
You know, marriage is the first social relationship described in the Bible. We read of it in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 to 25. And if you have your Bible, would you turn and read these verses of God's word with me? And let's stand as we read together. Verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all of the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whenever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So God made Adam first, but he was alone. So God, by another special act of creation, made a woman. Her name was Eve, to be his wife and soulmate. Then he brought her to the man, and the man said, Wow. No, no, that's not in the text. Okay. No, it was God who made marriage for the benefit and pleasure of mankind. Yes, but God made a man and a woman and and the institution of marriage primarily for his own glory. That's the first reason for everything God does. Whatever goes out from God is meant to come back to God. When God gives gifts, the glory and the praise is meant to come back to him. So marriages are meant to bring glory to God. And the Bible tells us clearly that they are a picture of Christ, who is the heavenly bridegroom, who comes to find his church, and the church is the bride, and he gives his life to win his bride. And the Bible tells of his faithful love for us. However, marriage is under attack in our society today. Many people consider it an outdated concept and totally unnecessary. Why not just live life and have open relationships without any fuss and bother? No rules, no borders, no strings attached. That's the way to live. So that's what the world says, and it's a good question to ask us, as as we as believers must have an answer for what the world presents to us, their idea of what marriage is or is not. We we need to be confirmed within our own hearts of the beauty and the goodness of marriage and, and to be able to give an answer for those who would say the opposite. And there are these answers in God's word. Now, I I like things clear and simple, and so I have just three words for you to describe God's view of marriage. To help you remember them, they all begin with the letter L. Marriage is meant to be loving. Marriage is certainly legal, and marriage is life-giving. 
loving, legal, and life-giving. First of all, marriage is loving. We read in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25, these beautiful words. It says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives. Unless we get any wrong conclusions that this verse does not have a partner in the immediate context to say that the wife is to love her husband, the Bible elsewhere calls a wife to love her husband, and that is found in Titus chapter 2 and verse 4. And this is what it says in Titus chapter 2 and verse 4. It says to the older women that then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and to love their children. And so love is enjoined upon both the man and the woman in marriage. But that just begs the question, what does love mean? And this is another thing that we have to consider seriously because love has very different meanings for different people. And so we need to be Bible-based. We need to be based in the Word of God for our understanding of what the, the word love really means. Let's start with perhaps the most famous gospel verse in the Bible, John chapter 3 and verse 16. And those who know it, let's quote it together. For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The word love is preeminent and primary in in that verse. For God so loved the world. And uh, love led him, love led God to an action. A determination of his will led him to act in a certain way. And that was to give his son. And that is what God was prompted to do because he loved you and me. He loved the whole world. And so he gave heaven's best gift. He gave his dearly beloved son. So love is an act of the will. And then it leads to giving something. Love is always about giving. Now, it's nice when we receive love. But the lover is the giver. And we, who are recipients of God's love, are are glad to receive it. But the love, in in essence, is a giving. It's a giving of something. And it's a giving of something good. God gave heaven's best gift. He gave the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we consider this verse, this is what we come up with as far as a definition of biblical love. Love is a commitment or a choice or a decision, an act of the will. Love is a commitment to give a blessing, something good. Love is a commitment to give a blessing. Can you say that after me? Love is a commitment to give a blessing. We see this also in 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 9, where we are called to love. It says in verse 9 of 1 Peter 3, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called, so that you might inherit 
a blessing. Now, I don't know if you're like me at all, but when I'm insulted, I get angry, and I really feel like insulting back. When I'm mistreated, I get upset, and my first temptation is to hit back. But the Lord says, I want you to be a lover. And even under these circumstances of duress, even when you are troubled, even when you're pained, even when you're angry, I want you to be able to return love. And we say, well, I don't feel that way. But then again, love is not a feeling. Love is a commitment to give a blessing. And that's the biblical definition of love. I give that blessing quite apart from what I feel. So love is not describing a feeling at all, although it comes with many feelings. As I told you, I'm a romantic, and I like to feel good feelings. And and when people are delighted by being in love, they really feel good. But love also brings other feelings. It brings sadness. Love can bring anger when we see the object of our love being mistreated. Love can bring sorrow when we are separated from our loved ones. So when you commit to love, you commit to a whole bunch of different feelings. But love itself is not a feeling. It is a decision of the will. When I met Kathy on that evening in Detroit so long ago, I told you that I fell in love. That's an expression that we use. And I'm sure many of us have had the experience. And if you haven't had the experience, I trust that you will in these days ahead. Have the experience of falling in love. What are we saying then? Well, at that moment, there was no determination on my part to give anything to Kathy. It was all about how I was feeling. I simply had this feeling, and that feeling was joy, that feeling was elation. You might even say that feeling was ecstasy. And the world calls this falling in love. But really, it's about joy. There was a study done recently regarding this. Researchers took MRIs of the brains of some college students who said they were in love. And they corresponded exactly with the MRIs of people who were hooked on cocaine. Falling on love, hooked on cocaine, same brain chemistry. Why? Because people who are hooked on cocaine are in this ecstasy. In fact, there's a drug called ecstasy. They feel good. And those who are in love, they're experiencing a very powerful and positive feeling. It's joy. Now, joy is a wonderful thing. But it's much more like the word like than the word love. I go to Wendy's and I have a hamburger and I like it. Now, we could say I love it, but you see, I'm not committed to give a blessing to the hamburger. (laughs) I just like that the hamburger is giving a blessing to my stomach. (laughs) So we should probably change the expression falling in love to falling in like. I fell in like. Because that's what it really is. I don't think that will get much traction in today's today's society. It just doesn't ring like falling in love, but it really is falling in like. Now, joy and, and liking can lead to love for sure. But this joy that we feel, this this joy of attraction, 
can also be very self-centered and lead one to do whatever he or she needs to do to serve their own pleasure. It can be very self-serving. It can be very selfish indeed. So remember, love is a commitment to give a blessing. When the joy moves one to give something good to the object of attraction, that is true love. Now, another thing about love is this. Love is labor. Love is labor. And the Bible makes this very clear. We read in, in, in John chapter 3, uh, verse 16, how God, God's love, led him to work, led him to labor. Because it was hard for God to give his son. It was hard for Jesus to die on the cross for us. And yet these were the gifts that we needed in order to have eternal life. It says in First Timothy, First Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3, and uh, this is what it says, We constantly remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Love is labor. Love is work. It's not always a good feeling. It may produce sweat on the brow. It may require hard work and even painful self-sacrifice. I remember a woman who loved her children so dearly that she worked day and night that they might be put through high school and then, and then into and get college degrees so that they would not be so poor as she had been growing up. That's love. And love led her, led her to work so very hard. And in marriage, it's not always about fun. It's about work. For those who are newly married, I have to counsel you on this. Right. There are times when it's not fun. There are times when it requires work because love, it leads to a giving, and giving can be expensive at times. Giving can be sacrificial. Giving can be painful at times. But that's what real love is. If love is just dependent on joy, it just, it just lasts as long as the good feeling lasts. And this is where you get those Hollywood romances, those Hollywood marriages that last a few months. All of the pages of the, uh, of the, the magazines are filled with how wonderful and how that, that marriage is and the fairy tale uh, weddings and so on. And then you find they're gone in about six months and there's divorce. What happened? Well, they lost the feeling. That, that feeling is gone, gone, gone. And, and, and that's what it was dependent on. It was dependent on good feelings. Real love works. Real love is committed. Real love gives a blessing even when there's pain. You know, every marriage in this world is a union of two sinners. And I can tell you this. When you get married, you not only double the enjoyment, but you double the sin. Just think about it. Two living, two people living in close proximity to one another, and they're both sinners. And sin happens. Sin happens. When, when I read in magazines about the causes of divorce, and they go down through, you know, incompatibility, uh, uh, different uh, goals, they changed their goals, and uh, they, they, they were distracted by life, and, and all sorts of different reasons why, why the divorce happens. They never put the, 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 re, the main reason for divorce is sin. 
Sin causes us to lose what love we have in our hearts. When you have sin, when you when it leads to selfishness, when it leads to carelessness, and you no longer care for the other person because you are sinfully, sinfully uh, breaking your, your vow, then divorce can happen. But when you're keeping your vow and you're trusting God to fill your heart with love, that marriage can work. So God meant to teach us a big spiritual lesson in marriage, and that is that true love is less about our needs and more about pleasing God and others. It takes selflessness to really love others well. This was my experience. Early in our marriage, I had to, I had to tell you this. I was, a, I was a romantic, but I was also a selfish guy. Early in our marriage, we spent a lot of time with some dear friends, another couple, and we used to spend uh, the, the weekends, especially Friday night or Saturday night, up to the wee hours of the morning playing board games. And that's what we really enjoyed. And, and, and Kathy would say, well, I have to get up in the morning because I've got to go to work as a nurse and t- tomorrow. And I would say, Look, honey, don't worry, just another half an hour. And then it would turn into another hour. And Kathy would come away from a long night's activities, dead tired. She had to get up early in the morning and go to Scarborough Centenary Hospital to work as a nurse. Kathy was getting too little sleep. And I didn't see it, you see, because I, I, I wasn't observant of what was happening in my wife. I just liked those long evenings when we were playing the board games with our friends. And one day, she almost got wiped out on the 401 because she went to sleep at the wheel. When she came home and she told me that, I suddenly realized, that Jim, you're a selfish man. You haven't been taking care of your wife. You were careless. You were just attentive to your own pleasure, your own joy. It's nice to spend time with friends. But what you were doing was systematically weakening your wife to the point of putting her life at risk. And so I repented, and I became much more dedicated as far as making sure that we got home to bed and to sleep at a good hour. So loving is the first descriptor, the first descriptor of marriage. Marriage is about loving. At this point, let me say that marriage is not God's intention for all men and women. We can live loving and God-honoring lives without a spouse. Singleness is a God-blessed option. I know of two notable exceptions in the Bible, the Apostle Paul and the Lord Jesus Christ himself. They were not married. And I have known other believers who chose singleness as a preferred way of living for the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul makes two arguments in favor of singleness. And the first one is in in chapter 7 and verse 28. It says, those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. Marriage is hard work. Marriage can bring trouble. Two sinners in the marriage. You double the opportunity to to affect one another with with sin. And so it, it can be troublesome and difficult. And the Lord wants to spare us that. And so when people choose singleness, they're spared. It also is, a, is about not being distracted from devotion to the Lord. It says in, in verses 32 to 35 of First Corinthians chapter 7, and I'm going to read these verses because I think it's important to balance the ledger here. 
so that people who choose singleness can know that there is a special blessing for them as well. It says in verse 32, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. A married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife as well. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. And I've known some people here in Canada and when we were on the mission field in Zambia who devoted their lives to the Lord and lived single so that they could have undivided love for Christ. God bless them. They will receive a great reward. And so, marriage is about loving. The second thing is about marriage is this. Marriage is legal. That's the next word to describe marriage. It's legal. As we said, most people today would rather skip the legal part In our Genesis text, this aspect of marriage is emphasized first in Adam's words. After God brought Eve to Adam, he may have said, wow. But what he did say was this. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Adam was acknowledging that when God gave Eve to him, it was a legally binding union so complete that he possessed his wife just as he possessed his bones and his flesh. So his property line extended out from his body to include his wife's body as well. So it says, for this cause a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. As surely as I was united to my birth family, and especially to my mother when she gave birth to me, I was like bone of her bone and flesh of her flesh. There was a union genetically imprinted by God, and we were family together. It's like we shared ownership of one another. We all owned that that relationship of family together. But in order to be married, I leave that that union of father and mother, and I strike up a new union with my wife. And it's called ownership. Ownership. Now, this is very politically incorrect in our society today because we don't like to think of the fact that we own somebody else. But that's exactly what marriage is. Now, this marriage, lest you think that it's just the man who owns the wife, it's a mutual ownership. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3, it says, The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife Do not deprive each other. So when you get married, you surrender the right of personal ownership over yourself in order to take on the right of collective ownership of your spouse. 
Personal ownership is surrendered in order to enjoy the blessings of collective ownership. So a husband and a wife are joint owners in common with one another. The wife is called to leave her father and mother just as surely as the man is called to leave her father and mother. It says this in Psalm 45 and verse 10. The bride is is told this by God. Forget your people and your father's house and seek your husband for he is your, he is your husband. And that's why it says in the classical marriage ceremony to have and to hold, I have my wife, I have my spouse, I have my husband, and I can hold on to that person because that person belongs to me. It says in the Song of Solomon, which is an ode, a song to the, the beauty of, of marriage, uh, it says in the Song of Solomon, the bride cries, cries out in joy, and she says, I am his, my lover is his, and, and he is mine. He is mine. Shared ownership. That's the legal part of marriage. I remember one time talking to a young couple, newly married and having some troubles in their marriage. I began to talk about this idea of legal ownership, expressing that it applies to the man as well as to the woman. That is why you have perfect freedom to have relations with one another, I said. Otherwise, you're trespassing against one another. In response, the man said, that's weird. I've never heard that before. And maybe there's some of you who have never heard this before. But I have to tell you this, it's the word of God. Shared ownership, legal entitlement to possess one another is what the Bible says. After I said that, the man was calling it weird. Because the mind of modern man does not know God's law, and that law establishes legal ownership. The wife then said to me, after after the, the husband had commented, she said, but you know what, I gave him the right of my body before we were married, so he didn't really trespass against me. Because I, 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 I gave myself to him before married. And I said, well, there's another law of God, And it's the law of first ownership. It says in Psalm chapter 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness of all the earth, the world and everything in it. Everything belongs to God first. And so when I think that my body belongs to me first and I can do what I want with it, they are really ignorant of the law of God. The law of God says, no, your body belongs to God. Now, when a person becomes a Christian, your body belongs to God in not just, not because he created it, but because he redeemed it. He redeemed it. Your body belongs to God because Jesus Christ purchased your life at the cross. So for two reasons, because of creation and because of salvation, our bodies belong to God first. So when that girl said to her boyfriend, you have the right to my body. She was actually trespassing against the first owner of her body, which is God. It's a trespass issue. So I said to her, you do not even have the first ownership of your own body. God does. Whether you, so whether you agreed or not, it was still a trespass against God. 
Needless to say, after that session, both parties were very displeased with their counselor. There are many so-called love stories on TV and in the movies where someone falls in love with a person already married. As the scenes go by, there is this passionate coming together of the hero and the heroine, culminating in the breakdown of the marriage and the two stars of the show making sweet music together somewhere on a beach in Hawaii. God would not call that a love story. He would call that a lust story. Lust is desire that is out of control or out of bounds. And in our love, we can get out of control. And when we take something that does not belong to us and we go into that relationship, uh, we are trespassing against God. God doesn't call it love anymore. Because remember the definition of love. Love is a commitment to give a blessing. When you take what is not yours and you trespass against God in that way, you are not loving God, you are disobeying him. And you're not loving the other person, you are actually doing harm to them. Well, you think, well, she's having fun and I'm having fun, can't we enjoy all of this? No, because you see, when you trespass against God, the wages of sin is not fun, the wages of sin is death. Adultery only tears down and destroys It destroys marriages, it destroys families, including their children and all the other people involved. And eventually, it will destroy the very fabric of our society because the first unit of of society is marriage. So if you're being tempted in this way, when lust says, mine, and when you love something so so wonderfully, you're in love, and you, you, you're, you're falling in love, and you're, you're addicted, and, and, and you say, surely she must be mine. Surely he must be mine. Please, for the sake of the Lord, tell yourself the truth. And the truth is, he's not mine. She's not mine. Dare to tell the truth in the middle of your desire. And you know what? It'll throw a cold bucket of water on your desire. Tell the truth. I'm desiring someone who is not mine. Not mine. And then turn to your wife or turn to your husband and say, he is mine. She is mine. Tell the truth to yourself. And then God will help you to get your passions and desires, ungodly passions and desires into check because you're living in the truth. On the other hand, love builds up and love blesses Pray for God to give you overflowing love for your spouse. When marriages are in trouble, I ask them this question. Are you praying for your spouse? And are you praying for yourself that the Lord restore your heart? God not only can can bring people into marriage, he can restore marriages. He can give grace. He can change your heart. I remember counseling a guy not long ago, and he said, I don't love my wife anymore. I don't have any joy. In fact, there's hate that rises in my soul. Whenever I see her, I can't stand looking at her. So I said, listen, repent. Ask the Lord to forgive you and cleanse you. And pray for the Lord to fill you with a heart of love and give you the joy of love once again. He came several weeks later. You know what he said? I love my wife. Well, what happened? 
God entered in by his grace. And God changed the heart of that man. Made him into a hater. From, from a hater into a lover. To my, to my mind, one of the most primary ways that we show love for one another is praying for one another. Always pray for your spouse. Always pray for a heart to be faithful to your spouse. Another point, God himself confirms the legal aspect of marriage. What God has joined together, let man not separate, Matthew 19 and 6. Yes, civil ceremonies and certificates are important, but the real commitment is with God. That is not to be taken lightly. God confirms the legal aspect of marriage. Lastly, marriage is life-giving. Life-giving. The first descriptor of marriage, it's loving. Secondly, it's legal. Lastly, it's life-giving. In Genesis, we read this command to God, to the man and to the woman. God created them and he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Be fruitful and multiply. God would not have commanded this unless he first gave the means to accomplish it. He made, it, he made us as sexual beings capable of bearing life or procreating. We're not creators of our children. We're procreators, which means we are, we are, we're active in the course of bringing life into this world through our bodies. What an awesome and wonderful responsibility. What a joyful privilege. He made us in this way. He made us uh, so that we could create and so that we could procreate and give life to children. So it should come as no surprise to all that sex is a gift from God to us, a gift that enables us to produce offspring and bring about the next generation. Everyone here came to be here because a man and a woman got together. Your father, your mother. And we're all here because of that. Life happens. We are life-giving units when we are married together. So a husband and wife are a life-giving unit, and it's an honorable and God-pleasing thing for them to become one and have children. We should celebrate this power of life and hold it high in a high and holy esteem. Marriage is honorable, the Bible says. The marriage bed is undefiled, Hebrews 13, verse 4. So to the married couples here, I say this. Not just on Valentine's Day, but all through the year. Commit to love. Recommit to love. Pray for the grace to be able to love your spouse well. Pray for the grace to forgive them because you know we're sinners. But pray for the grace to love your spouse well. Ask the Lord to give you the strength to do that and to remain faithful. Recommit to the legal agreement of the mutual ownership which gives you full right to share each other's body, each other's soul, each other's spirit, we, we are joint owners in common. Celebrate the honor afforded you to be a life-giving unit. And to the rest of us, pray for the marriages in our church. Pray for them. I know the elders, when we get together every couple of weeks, we pray for the marriages in this church. We know that marriages are falling apart at a very great rate. And so our intention for you is that you be blessed and that your marriages be successful. I want you to know we're praying for you. And for all of us, we need to pray for each other's marriages. You know, Christians ought to be the best lovers in the world. They ought to, they ought to have the best marriages. 
Because God is there. Because God is there. And one of the ways we celebrate the greatness of our God is to have successful marriages. And But, but remember this, marriage is not the only way to live for God and may not even be the best way for any one person. So be content with what God has given you and seek to be the loving person God intended. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this meditation on a very important subject of marriage. We thank you that you created a man and a woman and you created marriage. Puts us together in this this loving union, this legal union, this life-giving union so that we can honor you. And so I pray for every marriage in our assembly. I pray, Father, that you would prosper them. I pray that you'd protect them from temptation to defect I pray that you would give them faithfulness, that you would give them good hearts to bless one another lifelong. And for those who are not married, Lord, that you would give them much peace and joy in their, in their special relationship with you so that they can have undistracted attention upon the Lord. We commend this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.